Well, hello, everyone. It's good to be with you. Uh, to those at our campuses in Lake Mary and Waterford, it's great to be with you all. To the men and women at 33rd Street, it's awesome to be with you as well. I just love being a part of this family. And as we, as we end our series on the meals with Jesus, I want to end with a meal that I think really shows the impact Jesus had. The impact in his coming to earth, in his death on the cross, and his resurrection from the dead. Because Jesus became one of us, because he lived the life that you and I were supposed to live, because he died the death that we deserve, and because he rose from the dead, we can be reconciled to others, we can be reconciled to ourselves, and we can be reconciled to God. In fact, each one of, of these reconciliations is based on the next one. We can be reconciled to others because we are reconciled to ourselves because we are reconciled to God. Confused? Did that make sense? I don't know if it did, but if it didn't, just stick with me. And I hope by the end of this, we will all see how this reconciliation happens. And it all happens in the context of this, this one meal on a beach. It's found in John 21, and I'm going to start reading in the fourth verse. If you don't have a Bible, it's printed in your bulletin. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals. There were fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. This is God's word. Now I've read this story a bunch but there was something that struck me this time that hadn't before. 
Because the story is primarily about Peter and Jesus and the reconciliation that happens between the two of them. It happens between the two of them over breakfast of fish. I'm putting my mind around that too, having fish for breakfast. Um, You know, like if Long John Silver's was still around, they could have fish biscuits or something. Um, But but what struck me about this were the the other disciples. What struck me as I never really thought about the other disciples that were around. In fact, we know which disciples were there. In the verses preceding the ones where we read, we're told that Simon Peter was there, Thomas, the doubting Thomas, was there, Nathaniel, the two sons of Zebedee, which are James and John, and then two other disciples who aren't named. Um, we'll call them Milford and Hermano. Um, but so you've got these seven men here, and these seven men are so very different from one another, yet they're all together. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Nathaniel. Nathaniel doesn't get a lot of airtime, but he, I've always liked Nathaniel. I've always felt a kinship to him. Maybe, uh, maybe because he, I think he's like me. He's a person who too easily believes He's easily taken in. He's almost superstitious. I feel like if he were alive today, he would also be way too into Disney. And so so I like this guy. And when he first meets Jesus, and we're told about this in the beginning of John's gospel in chapter one, we're told uh, that Jesus says to him when he first meets him, Nathaniel, I saw you under a fig tree. Now, We don't know what Nathaniel was doing under the fig tree, but as far as Nathaniel was concerned, it was an absolute secret. It was like nobody knew that he was under a fig tree or what he was doing under that fig tree. But when Jesus says he knows, all of a sudden Nathaniel immediately responds, oh man, that's some kind of supernatural knowledge. Like how in the world do you know that? And he turns and he looks at Jesus and he says, you are the king of Israel. And Jesus responds, really? Like, I mean, like, he doesn't really respond that way, but like that's the, that's the kind of feeling that Jesus gives. Jesus is like, wait a second. You, you are so easily impressed. You already think that I'm king of Israel and that's all I had to do. All I had to do was tell you about being under a fig tree. Jesus says, you will see far greater things than this. So Nathaniel was a person who was just very quick to believe. He was gullible. Um, he, he, he kind of fell for things. I totally get him. Y'all, I can't tell you how often I sincerely respond to sarcasm. Um, and it's, it's so embarrassing. Happens all the time around this place. And, uh, and so you got Nathaniel like that. And then you have Thomas. And Thomas is the exact opposite. If Nathaniel overbelieves, Thomas underbelieves. He's hard-hearted. He's doubtful. He's cynical. But here they are together. Nathaniel's and Thomas's ordinarily don't get along. Thomas's see Nathaniel's as idealistic liberals who are ruining the world. And Nathaniel's see Thomas's as cynical conservatives who are ruining the world. But here they are together. Then you have John and Peter. John is a rationalist. He thinks things through. He, he examines evidence. When John and Peter show up at the tomb uh, of Jesus after Jesus is resurrected, we're told that John notices the linen cloths. He notices where they're laid and how they're laid. He, 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 he looks and he tries to figure things out. In fact, when, uh, when this fishing phenomenon happened uh, on, this, on this boat on this morning, it reminded John of another time it happened in Jesus' presence. 
early in their relationship with Jesus, the exact same thing happened. It's recorded in Luke 5. They had been out fishing all night, hadn't caught a thing, and then Jesus showed up and said, hey, try again. And all of a sudden, they, they were full of fish. So when this happens, it is John who thinks it through and then declares in verse 7, this is the Lord. But he doesn't respond with action very quickly. I mean, he starts rowing back to the shore, but he's not like in a rush to act. Now, Peter, who, by the way, doesn't really think through anything, um, is, is always the first to act. He's the first one to do something. He jumps out of the boat and he swims to shore. Now, Peter and John's don't normally get along either. Peter's think that John's are cowards, always wanting to form a committee to like make sure they truly understand like what the next right step should be. And, and John's look at Peter's and say, they're impetuous and, and they're, they're hot-headed. But here they are in a boat together. And so as I was thinking about the fact that you had all these disciples together and that Jesus was gonna build his church out of them, it started making me think about how the Bible teaches over and over again, especially in the book of Ephesians, which we studied last summer, that that is how the church will be built, that Jesus will bring people together that cross racial boundaries, temperamental divides, class divides, gender across every possible divide, that Jesus Christ will bring together people who otherwise would despise one another, who would want nothing to do with each other, through Jesus, we can be reconciled to literally anybody. But there's a reason that we don't really see that. There's a reason that the church doesn't really look like that. There's a reason we're still pretty divided and segregated. And it's because we haven't been reconciled to ourselves. Again, at the beginning, I said each type of reconciliation is built on a deeper and more core reconciliation. So before we can be reconciled as a community, before we can be reconciled to each other, we first have to be reconciled to ourselves. In the letter of James, which is the, the book we're gonna study this coming summer, James says something very profound in James 4, um, verse one. He says this, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? He's essentially saying that the fighting that's happening on the outside is coming from the fighting that is happening on the inside. That's very profound. He's saying if you can't be transparent with yourself, if you can't admit who you are, how can you be transparent with others? Everything that's going on inside of you is what's causing the quarrels that are happening outside you. See, the Bible teaches us that without God's help, we all live lives of illusion. That we spend all of our lives trying to prove to other people that we're something other than what we really are. That we can't admit our flaws, that we can't admit our weaknesses, that we can't admit our brokenness to one another. But the Bible also teaches that we can't admit these things to ourselves. But in order to be reconciled to others, we first must be reconciled to the reality of who we really are. At the end of Jesus's life, all of the disciples let Jesus down, every single last one of them. But Peter's betrayal was by far the most grievous. Peter was in the inner circle. 
He was one of the three that were closest to Jesus. We're told Peter, James, and John were Jesus' core buddies while he lived on earth. They were the ones that got the most time with him. They were the ones that he shared the most with. And even though Peter got the most one-on-one time with Jesus, Peter was the most out of touch with who he really was. Peter was the type of guy who needed to maintain an image. He's the guy who always had to be on, who could never let his hair down. I've been waiting to be able to do something with this hair. So thank you. Thanks for letting me do that. Um, He had to maintain a certain image of himself as a strong person. And we we all know people like that. Maybe we are people like that. I really don't like Peter, but I think it's because the things I don't like about Peter, I hate about myself. Peter needed to maintain this image of himself so much so that that he was the only one of all the disciples who insisted that if Jesus were taken, he wouldn't fall away. That he would remain faithful even if everyone else deserted Jesus. Peter says in Matthew 26, 33, even if all the rest fall away on account of you, I never will. I am ready to go with you to prison or even to death. No other disciple was so stupid as to say that except Peter. And not only that, when he says, I alone, when he says, if all the rest fall away, what he's saying is, Jesus, I've been hanging out with these other 11. None of them love you like I love you. None of them will give you the kind of allegiance that I've given you. I love you more than these. See, Peter in his own mind was a man of such integrity and courage that nothing could disrupt his resolve. So, who are you in your own mind? When you think about yourself, how do you see yourself? What is core to who you are? To Peter, it was an unwavering courage and commitment. Yet, at the moment of crisis, he was revealed to be his worst nightmare. A coward, one who who only looked after saving his own skin, someone with no integrity at all. And Peter's denial of Jesus was very public. He was in a courtyard uh, when Jesus was on trial and there were groups of people around him, servants and soldiers, and they're all standing around this, this fire And three times people asked him, are you a follower of Jesus? And every single time he said emphatically, I do not know this man. See, Peter was not the man he thought he was. John Newton, who wrote the the hymn Amazing Grace, probably our most beloved hymn, also wrote a hymn called The Look. And this hymn is based on Peter's denial of Christ. In fact, it's based on one particular verse found in Luke 22. Verse 61 says this, and this happens right after Peter's final denial of Jesus, knowing who Jesus is. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. Listen to these lyrics of this hymn. I saw one hanging on a tree in agony and blood who fixed his loving eyes on me 
as near his cross I stood. And never till my dying breath will I forget that look. It seemed to charge me with his death, though not a word he spoke. How do you live with yourself after something like that? How do you go on? Here's how. Look at what Jesus does. Verse nine, when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it. Jesus brings Peter back to the fire. He brings him back to the place of his betrayal. But that's not all. Down in verse 15, it says, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Again, remember the other disciples are there. There are other people around. So what Jesus is doing here when he asks this first question is he's giving a very pointed reminder of the content of Peter's betrayal. Peter had said, everyone else will fall away, but I never will because I love you more than the rest of them. And so Jesus says, do you really love me more than these? And then if that wasn't enough, Jesus asked him three times, do you love me? Now this can seem brutal. Like what is Jesus doing here? He's actually doing something so kind and gracious for Peter. He is undoing Peter's denial. And I don't just mean he's undoing Peter's denial of Jesus. He's undoing Peter's self-denial. He is forcing Peter to actually look at himself as he really is. For the first time maybe in his life, Peter is able to see himself clearly. A few years ago, and I I might have told you all this before, and I apologize if I have, but a few years ago when when we just had three kids, not five, uh, we were at a Tijuana Flats having dinner, and and, uh, this... This sweet uh, woman came over to us while we were having our meal and she said, hey, I'm a, I'm a producer of a TV show and I've just been watching your family and, and I was you know, wondering if y'all would ever want to be on TV. And, and we were like, well, I, I don't know. And she's like, well, you know, give me a call. Here's my, here's my card. I, I produce this show called Super Nanny. And, uh, and if y'all want to be on it, you know, let me know. Um, I don't know if y'all remember Super Nanny, but Super Nanny is a show where parents who have unruly children and cannot discipline them has a nanny come in and like fix their kids. So obviously that dinner was not going well, even though I kind of thought it was a nice dinner. I thought we were doing well. Um, But my response when we got home to Kelly, I said, there's no way. There is no way. I do not want to see the reality of my parenting through the scrutinizing lens of reality TV. I don't want to see it. I don't want to know how bad my parenting is. See, none of us do. None of us want to really see ourselves clearly. And this has been the case since the fall. Since Adam and Eve first disobeyed God, we have been making coverings for ourselves. But not just coverings so that other people can't see us as we really are, but coverings so that we don't actually have to look at who we really are. Sin has ruined our psychological relationship with ourselves. So when Jesus says to Peter, do you love me? He is forcing Peter to face himself. But not only so that Peter can see himself, but so that he can also tell Peter what he had in mind when he thought Peter up. Every time Jesus says, 
I want you to see the brokenness of who you are. He follows it up by driving down into Peter's heart the most incredible love and affirmation. Every time after he asked Peter that question, he responds by saying, Peter, feed my sheep. Jesus is saying, I want to use you just as you are, not as you think you should be. Right now, I want to use you right now, right now, just as you are, not as you think you should be. You, Peter, who you really are can be used for glory. Who you are right now can be used to build my kingdom. Who you are right now is absolutely enough. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus can use you just as you are, not as you think you're supposed to be? Do you believe that Jesus can use you in this moment right now with who you really are, that you are enough for the good work he has for you to do. When Peter faces the reality of who he is, Jesus tells him what he had in mind when he thought him up and that he's enough right in this moment to begin living into that reality. Jesus says, you have failed me, Peter. And Peter says, I know. And Jesus says, okay, now take charge. You're the leader. There are seven, again, seven other disciples at this meal. And out of all seven, Peter is the most broken. Out of all seven, Peter is the one who, who most clearly did not know himself. Peter is the one who needed to maintain an image more than the rest of them. Peter, out of all seven of them, was the greatest failure. And yet Jesus says, out of the seven of you, because your failure is the greatest, you're the leader. At this meal, Jesus is changing everything. He's declaring that the way the world operates is not the way the kingdom of God operates. Jesus says, plunge your failure into my grace and I'll make you greater than you were before. We said a few weeks ago that sinners are the only people Jesus loves. But sinners are also the only people Jesus uses to lead. Sinners are the only people Jesus uses to lead. And Jesus made this point over and over and over again in his ministry. Like in Luke 7, when the prostitute crashes the dinner party of the Pharisee and, and Jesus says to this religious man, this Pharisee, he says, hey, I want you to know that there are going to be more people who know the truth through this woman than will ever know the truth from you. And he says, the reason is because those who have been forgiven much love much. See, Jesus says the way the kingdom of God operates, the people God uses are not the people that the world elevates. See, the more you see your brokenness, the more you plunge yourself into Jesus's grace, the more you'll understand other people the more you'll be able to understand how the human heart works and the more you'll become reliant on Jesus because you know, left on your own, you are bound to mess it up. The more you, you see yourself as you really are, the more you understand your brokenness, the wiser you're gonna be because you know you're the biggest failure. Why did Peter deny Christ? I don't think it was just to save his life. 
I think he denied Christ because he denied what Christ had said about his weakness. See, Peter's sin didn't start around the fire the night of Jesus's trial. It started when Peter said, hey, I will follow you till the day I die. It started with an arrogant proclamation. And over this meal with Jesus, Peter sees his pride for what it is. He sees that his cowardice is really just a lack of humility. He sees that his competitiveness with the other disciples is because the whole foundation of his life, the reason he felt worthy was his ability to be better than other people. Is that you? Where, where have you put the foundation of your life? What, what, what have you put the foundation of your life on? Peter had put it on the ability to be better than other people. And unless Jesus broke him of that, Peter could never truly be who God had in mind when he thought him up. Is there anything that Jesus is trying to break you of? Let him. Let him. There is so much more on the other side of brokenness than what you're experiencing now. And in order to be reconciled to ourselves, in order to have the courage to really see ourselves as we truly are, we have to go even deeper than that and first be reconciled to God. In Luke 5, the first time Peter saw all those fish come in and he realized that he was in the presence of someone who wasn't just this great teacher, he realized that Jesus has to be more than just some man his response to Jesus was, depart from me. Get away from me. Why? Because Peter wasn't a Christian yet. Because Peter's whole self-image was based on his performance. And being in the presence of Jesus, being in the presence of the perfect human being, God incarnate made Peter feel worthless. Our president when asked about whether or not he asked for forgiveness, um, he answered, no, I just try to do better next time. Peter spent his whole time with Jesus trying to do better. While he was with his Savior, his whole life was a cycle of trying to do better and better and better until the cross. Something changed in Peter after Jesus' death. Because in John 21, after the, the death of Jesus and his resurrection, when Jesus does the exact same miracle that he did back in Luke 5, Peter's response when he saw this was not to move away from Jesus, but to move as quickly towards him as he could. He didn't even wait for the boat to get ashore. Why? Because he knew the cross meant everything had changed. He knew that now there was nothing left to prove that he was acceptable, that he was made righteous, that his standing with God was no longer based on how well he was doing, but on how well Jesus had done for him. On the cross, Jesus switched places with him. Listen to the uh, second and third verse of that John Newton hymn, The Look. My conscience felt and owned the guilt and plunged me in despair. 
I saw my sins his blood had spilt and helped to nail him there. But with a second look, he said, I freely all forgive. This blood is for your ransom paid. I died that you might live. Thus while his death my sin displays for all the world to view, such is the mystery of grace. It seals my pardon too. With pleasing grief and mournful joy, my spirit now is filled that I should such a life destroy, yet live by him I killed. Peter would later write in 1 Peter 2, 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, we have been healed. See, Jesus had reconciled Peter to God through the cross. Have you experienced what Christ has done for you? Have you stood where Peter stood and, and been able to look honestly at yourself and at your brokenness and hear Jesus say, okay, now let me tell you what I want to do with you. Let me tell you what I had in mind when I thought you up. Have you experienced the freedom that Peter felt no longer needing to rely on your own performance, but resting in Christ's performance for you? If you have, and you've never actually taken that step of faith, be reconciled today. We say around here, take as long as you need, but no longer than is necessary. But if you can take that step today, do. Don't wait. Today is the best day to be reconciled to God because of what Jesus did. Because once you're reconciled to God, you can look at anything in your life and know you're okay. And if you can do that, then you can move towards any person, no matter how different they appear, and know that they can be okay as well. So if you can take that step and you never have, take it. And then show up at the beach and get baptized. It's going to be a great day. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for my brother Peter, who kind of drives me nuts, um, who I don't think I would like to hang out with. Um, but in Peter, I see so much of myself and I see so much of the grace that you offer us. Father, I thank you that we no longer have to rely on our own performance, but that we can look to Jesus as the one who performed in our place. And when we admit that, we're free. And we're free to actually hear what it is you do want to use us for, what it is you do want to do through us. I pray that for us as a church family. I pray that we would so see the reconciliation that has been provided by Christ, that it makes us into people who reconcile with others. And Father, if there's any that haven't taken the step of faith, but they can, 
They're at the place where they know that it's true. Father, I pray that you would woo their heart in such a way that they would. And that at baptism, there would be a great celebration, a great declaration that despite all our misgivings, despite how much we mess up, that in you, there always is grace. And we pray this in the one who came after us. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.